ReachMD XM160 brings you this special presentation on healthcare reform, a panel discussion among medical professionals led by Vice President Joe Biden, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, and Dr. David Blumenthal, the Obama Administration's National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. The discussion was convened on August 20th at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. It has been shortened for broadcast. Sinai is proud to host this important conversation this morning. So, Mr. Vice President, welcome to Sinai. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Burris, how are you? It's great to see you. It's great to see so many familiar faces out here and uh, so many docs and nurses. With us today are some very impressive panel, and I'm not being solicitous. I mean, they genuinely are. Dr. David Blumenthal, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services here today with us, flew out from Washington with me. Dr. David Baker from Northwestern is a practicing primary care doctor and an expert on the consequences for people ages 50 to 64 who lack health insurance. I mean, how many times have you heard in this debate people saying, well, people without insurance, they can get it. I mean, they, they can get health care. Let's go to the emergency room. It's not like we're denying people in this country health care. Well, uh, Doc can talk about the significant consequences of how people's behaviors are changed when they don't have health insurance. And uh, uh, Dr. Uh, is a Galanti, am I pronouncing it correctly? Uh, Galanti. Well, you can call me Bidden, Doctor. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, um, but Doctor Martha is from uh, Northwestern and is a cardiologist who focuses on preventive medicine and the ways it can uh, make, particularly she's focused on women with heart disease, make women less likely to develop heart disease in the first place. Dr. June McCoy uh, from Northwestern is a clinical and academic gerontologist uh, who's going to point out the advantages and their significance of coordinating elder care. And a woman who uh, is where, as they say, the rubber meets the road, Sharia Hamilton is an emergency room nurse here at Mount Sinai. And uh, Steve Whitman is the director of Sinai's Urban Health Institute. And Peter Ingram is the chief information officer of the Sinai Health System. So we have a really first-rate panel who every single day deal with what we're talking about here and understand uh, why what we've been talking about is so badly needed. It may seem strange to quote or reference a Greek uh, poet, but the Greek poet Virgil once said, the greatest wealth, the greatest wealth is health. The greatest wealth is health. Well, we're here uh, today to hopefully begin to make our system a little healthier again, and in the process, deal with preserving America's wealth. So what we're going to talk about today is not the whole enchilada of health care, but one of the necessary preconditions out there to gain control of a system that through no fault of any one individual or a doc or a hospital or an administrator or anybody is out of control. That's what this is about. So today, I'm announcing here in Chicago one point, the availability of $1.2 billion from the Recovery Act for electronic health record funding. Think about this in simple, basic terms. We're trying to modernize a system. So, folks, look, we have a first-class panel here with us today. The problems that we face are real. They're consequential. There's an awful lot of misinformation out there about our health care position. I'm just trying to get real basic here. And one of the most important things I think that almost everyone can agree on, let's agree on what we can agree on, is you've got to modernize this system and you've got to reform the health insurance system. 
So what I'm going to do is now yield the floor to Secretary Sebelius, and then we'll get into a, uh, a roundtable discussion, ladies and gentlemen. Governor, now Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, uh, Kathleen Sebelius. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, Mr. Vice President. I'm going to be very brief this morning. It's very appropriate that we're here today not only talking about health insurance reform, but also talking about a big piece of the puzzle of a reform system, which is the introduction of health information technology. And the goal of having an electronic medical record for every American by 2013. I'm delighted to have not only this expert panel here, but Dr. David Blumenthal, who has taken the role as the national coordinator for health information technology. Dr. Blumenthal not only knows a lot about technology, but uh, has been a practicing physician for decades. So he comes at this very important puzzle from two standpoints, uh, knowing the health system as a practitioner and also knowing how technology can assist us to uh, deliver better medical care. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Thank you to the members of the audience and to the Mount Sinai Hospital System for hosting us. I am very proud and humbled to have the responsibilities that this administration has conferred on me to be part of this effort to build a national health information infrastructure. This today provides the first step in what will be an ongoing set of activities designed to make that vision a reality. Before we get into the details, let me say a little bit about why I personally am involved in what I'm doing. I am a physician. I'm a primary care physician, have been so for more than 30 years. It feels very comfortable for me to be in this institution surrounded by physicians and nurses. I am not, despite my title, a technology person. Uh, my wife thinks it's hilarious that I have this job because <laughs> she takes care of the computers at home. But what I have is experience as a primary care physician using an electronic health record. I wasn't delighted to have to do it when I started using one 10 years ago, but I learned. And as I learned, it suddenly dawned on me that I was becoming a better physician. I knew what medicines my patients were on. I knew what the cardiologist or the pulmonologist or the rheumatologist was doing and what their theory was about the patient's illness. I knew what medicines they changed. I knew what other tests had been ordered. I like to tell the story about a time when I was ordering an abdominal CAT scan to image a patient's kidneys. And because we had clinical decision support, so-called algorithms built into the computer that looked at what other tests had been ordered, when I entered that order, the computer said, are you sure you want to order that? Because we think that this information may be available already to you. So sure enough, I found that on a CT of the chest, a pulmonary chest CT done from the chest down rather than the abdomen, the kidneys had been seen and the information I needed was there. So I saved the patient a thousand times the radiation dose that a chest x-ray would have. I saved the patient the inconvenience of coming in for another test and at my institution, that often meant 2 in the morning or Sunday morning at 9 o'clock because the equipment was so heavily used. And I saved the system thousands of dollars, not just the x-ray itself, but the radiology report. Those are the small victories that I think, one by each, can make a huge difference if we have the capabilities in electronic health records 
can create, their health victories and their efficiency victories. What we are doing right now is recognizing that it's not easy, especially if you're a small practice physician or a small hospital, it's not easy to make this change. You have to slow down in terms of productivity. You have to pick a piece of equipment. That's very, very confusing and daunting. And once you have it and your waiting room is full and the system goes down, you're in trouble. You need help, just the way all of us depend on IT systems, support systems to give us help. So what we're creating is that kind of a support system through something called regional extension centers, which will be available to small physicians, especially primary care physicians serving underserved populations who don't have those kinds of resources. We're also creating a system that will enable information to flow from one part of the healthcare system to another. We're giving grants to states to give them the role of leading what's called health information exchange, which is the movement of information with patients around the healthcare system. The states are ideally suited to play that role. They're not sufficient, but they have to be part of it. So we're giving the states a cooperative agreements grants to be part of that. And then more will follow. But that's where we're beginning. But the goal is to make sure that we don't have duplicative testing, that we get the right testing done at the right time, that patients and doctors can make the best decisions for themselves because they have the best possible information. So with that, Mr. Vice President, I will stop. Well, that's very helpful because, again, I get asked, as I'm sure you do and the Secretary and I suspect everyone else, about, well, you know, this money was going for $1,200,000,000 billion, million nationwide, and you're setting up centers to do what and how. I mean, and you just explained it. I mean, it is kind of daunting as to pick which of the systems you're going to pick, how to do it. And one of the problems we have is we expect docs to be uh, kind of everything. We expect you to be businessmen and women. We expect you to be scientists. We expect you to be uh, sort of social workers. We expect you to, you know, it, it, I'm serious. And so the point I want to emphasize is if this is done well, Docs are going to get back to being docs. I'd like to ask uh, Dr. June McCoy at Northwestern uh, to uh, talk a little bit about how this kind of stuff affects her practice and her area of expertise. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. It's really wonderful to be here at Mount Sinai and to have the opportunity to give voice to the patients for whom I care. I have a 92-year-old patient who actually told me, in a way jokingly, but kind of semi-seriously, that her relatives really are angry with me because she continues to live. And they thought she would have passed away a long time ago, and she's 92, and she's going strong. And I think that goes to how important it is that we have practitioners dedicated to organizing and coordinating the care for older patients. Doc, can I ask you one question? I invite anyone else to chime in here. One of the hopeful overall impacts of a health insurance reform legislation in its entirety, beyond what we're talking about here, is this notion of coordinated care, which you're talking about. Is there movement in your medical school and others to deal with this coordinating of care? I mean, how important is that tied with these records keeping peace? I think it's really critical, a critical component of the record systems. And I think uh, I can see that uh, Dr. Baker um, has comments coming behind mine on that. Medical schools have been trying to educate um, their students now to understand the importance of communication. 
I don't know of any real organized um, effort to have coordinators per se. And I think communication goes to the heart of this coordination of care that we're talking about. Dr. Baker, you want, Baker. would you have some comments? There's been a lot of talk about how electronic health records improve quality and safety and reduce these unnecessary tests. But I think the improvements in communication are probably the most revolutionary. And I can give a couple of very concrete examples. So on Monday, I had a patient who was admitted to the hospital, and I was called up by the physician who was taking care of the patient. And I was able, even though I wasn't in clinic that day, I was able to log on electronically, review all of the patient's records, figure out what the problem had been that caused this person to come in with a low blood sugar, come up with a treatment plan with the physician, and get the patient out of the hospital safely the following day. So everything improved. Now, a week before, I had a patient who was admitted to another hospital in Chicago, came in with pneumonia, but actually turned out to have leukemia. So I saw that patient. I talked to the doctor there. I got the patient in a few days later to see me, and I still don't have that patient's records. I still don't have critical information that I need to make the decision. So we've had to reorder some see very a lot of expensive. Docs out there shaking their heads. <laughs> right. We all deal with this every day. So it's really revolutionized the communication. If a patient, and on the safety issue as well, if somebody comes into the hospital now and they have tests done, you know, they know that I'm the patient's physician. But even if the physician forgets, those tests now, our system, they come automatically to me. If the patient comes in to see an orthopedic surgeon and I wasn't coordinating the care, the note comes automatically. So it really radically improves our communication. And the last thing is it gives a tremendous opportunity for the patients to be empowered. Yeah. Because now we have these patient portals. So more and more of our patients, we can communicate with them by email. And if they're saying, hearing something from another doctor, we can be brought in the loop on that. We have a system now where patients can measure their blood pressure at home and send in electronically all of their information. Uh, the issue about the uh, elderly, you can actually assign a family member to have access yep. to the patient's records as well. So it really radically improves the communication, safety, quality, all of these different areas. Now, Sherry, you deal with people every day that are, are among, as the doctor said, the poorest of the poor in, in difficult circumstances, and many of them have never had insurance or uh, never been covered except under maybe Medicaid. Talk to us about what you face every day. Our patients that come to the emergency room come to us as a last resort. They are in crisis. They have multi-systems problems. The little grandmother that comes in, she's coming in for chest pain, but she's hypertensive. She's a diabetic. She's on renal dialysis three days a week. She's depressed. This impacts upon us. She doesn't have money for her medication, so she's waited and waited and waited. And yes, now the problem is complicated. It's, uh, even if she has a physician, she might be seeing three or four different doctors. How do we get information if she can't remember, she can't tell us what's going on? How do we get this information about what tests have been done, what tests need to be done? If we do tests, how do we compare the results of the test? When you come to the emergency room, it's a life-threatening situation. We have to make life-death decisions. They have, to be, they have to be made right away. We need information. We need it right away. The patient can't give it to us. The family isn't there. What do we do? This is a big impact upon us. And this is just not one patient that's coming in with this problem. You have 10, 20, 30. The ambulances are coming in every five minutes. Cars are pulling up. People are here. We have to take care of our patients. What do we do? What do you do? 
<laughs> we're just like we're putting together the pieces of the puzzles. We try and get information from the patient. We try and get information from relatives if they're there. If the patient is in the Mount Sinai system, we have access to those computers. Right. We can get that information. If the doctor orders an EKG, if the, a patient had EKG done a week ago, we can get that EKG. But if that patient was at another hospital, which a lot of our patients frequent different emergency rooms, we have no access to that information. So we need that communication. And I think um, one of the importances of the announcement today, the, um, the funding that will help fund the health information exchange is to break down just precisely that barrier, to expand beyond the four walls of our institutions so we can start exchanging that information and we can, and we can provide that continuum of care that will improve the results and save money. One last question. There's a reason we saved you last because you see it in a more acute sense every single day, multiple times a day. What as a serious nurse, uh, someone who has significant experience, what do you worry about most when you show up to work every day? A bad outcome because we couldn't get to a patient in time, because we had too many patients to take care of, safety issues for the staff, because the emergency room now is a very, very violent place. You have more and more health care workers now being injured. We're constantly threatened. We're abused. We're spit at. We're swung at. We're kicked. We have urinals thrown at us. We have bedpans thrown at us. There are several issues. We could talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, as my mother would say, you're, you're doing God's work, kid. You're doing God's work. Let me uh, open it up to, uh, you, uh, you want to talk about how it is running a hospital like this? My role here is to provide the systems that make these providers more effective. And this is actually one of the more exciting times the amount of progress that we're making. But I think there's some opportunity here. We're sort of focused in the Recovery Act on health information technology, and now in healthcare reform, we're looking more at health insurance. I think there's some opportunities for the health insurance industry to be of assistance in this process. I think it's ridiculous that there is not a standard health insurance ID card that's scannable, like a credit card. It uniquely identifies the individual, it identifies the account. There's no equivalent like that. One of the issues we talked about was how to get information between different environments. One of the keys to that is knowing who the patient is. And when you don't know who the patient is, you wind up repeating the same test to be sure that you know. There's some huge opportunity the health insurance industry has to step up and improve their performance in that regard. There's some opportunities that they could, uh, um, providers spend too much effort getting paid for their services. There's improvements they could make in standardizing how they pay claims, what their requirements are to get those claims paid, getting that level of standardization. And I think there's a role for government in helping to introduce that standardization, to require that of insurers as a way to really help move the way healthcare is provided forward and also to reduce the amount of money that we spend in the healthcare industry, but not related to the direct provision of care. That's something we have to do something about. Peter, one of the features in the health reform bill are enormous steps forward in administrative simplification, in billing simplification, in you know insurance identification. Uh, we estimated. I'm a one of my former lives was as insurance commissioner for eight years in Kansas, and so I supervise the marketplace, but 
particularly um, for smaller employer policies, we estimate that about 30 cents of every dollar is not buying a drop of medicine or paying a provider, it's overhead and right. paperwork. And not only is it not very cost effective, but it drives the healthcare providers totally crazy. Um, I don't know a single practitioner who's hired an additional nurse or doctor in the practice. And most of them, extra personnel, are to fill out forms and to try and get paid. And the billing operation for um, physicians, clinics, offices has just grown tremendously, not providing health care, but trying to just um, move through this enormous process. So I think you're absolutely right, and part of the health reform bills in Congress would actually provide directives for a lot of that administrative simplification, which is I so don't, I don't know a provider that wouldn't stand up and cheer <laughs> for that. Dr. Uh, Whitman, I'd like to move to an area that you have a genuine expertise in. You have uh, gone out there as the director of the Urban Health Institute here at the hospital. You've done studies on the health disparities that exist in urban communities. And I was told that, that you led a study on pediatric asthma in the community surrounding Sinai, which found that between 10 and $13 are saved for every dollar spent on education and prevention because so many hospitalizations are averted. Talk to us, Doc, about what your institute has come up with. Can right. you talk to us about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd be honored to do that. We found any number of children in pediatric asthma coming to our emergency room with episodes of asthma, being hospitalized, missing days of school, waking up in the middle of the night. The families all have to come into the emergency room. They bring the children. The next day, the children miss school. The parents miss work, and on and on and on like that. So we have formed the uh, Pediatric Asthma Initiative here at Mount Sinai. And what we've been doing is, again, trying to go out with the families in their homes, help them clean up their homes, help them get rid of asthma triggers, patch up holes in the walls where rodents are coming in, eliminate the problem of roaches, convincing families not to smoke, and if they can't give up smoking, at least not to smoke near the children so they're not exposed to secondhand smoke, which is a common phenomenon. I think one outstanding attribute of the program is that we hire people from the community to become these community health workers, to go into the homes. Often they're people who haven't had jobs before. And so we're giving them jobs, we're giving them health benefits, uh, and doing many other uh, community strengthening work with them. The remarkable thing for me is that I'm a mathematician, not a physician like, like most of you all, and um, we carefully evaluate what we do. And what we found is that these kinds of programs, and we're now in the eighth year of, of these programs, uh, is that um, we've been able to reduce by 75% hospitalizations, by 70% uh, emergency room appearances. We've been able to decrease utilization of urgent visits to the doctor, but at the same time increase regular visits to the doctor. So the whole system is becoming more rational. The children are missing fewer days of, of school, the parents are missing fewer days of work, and it's just terrific. We estimate that the intervention is associated with cost savings of $2,561 per participant per year. Given that a full-time community health worker can effectively serve approximately 100 patients a year, we would therefore expect that by funding one community health worker, the Illinois Department of Public Health could save approximately $256,000 a year, one of them. I do think we're missing an important point here. If we don't 
demonstrate to the American people that the federal government getting involved in trying to come up with a more rational system can have the economic impact of not only ending up with a more rational system delivering better health care, but saving taxpayers tens of billions of dollars over time. So my rhetorical question that is, can be answered if you wish, is the example relating to asthma, is that equally as applicable to heart disease? Is it equal applicable to other diseases out there? If I could talk about heart disease, if we can work as a society to prevent heart disease, we'll not be paying for the care for chronic illness as heart disease. If we can start targeting our population, screening them as young as the age of 20 for high blood pressure, for cholesterol problems, helping them quit smoking, helping them with weight loss, we are all going to save money. One example I get very frustrated in my clinic is, is that I have a lot of overweight and obese people and, of course, two-thirds of the United States is either overweight or obese. These are the people who need help. They're going to develop diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure as a consequence of their weight, in addition to other medical issues. So this is the group of people that I'd love to refer to a dietitian. They don't need me. They need someone to help them how to, how to eat right, how to exercise, how to lose weight. Well, unfortunately, the only way you'll get referred to a dietitian where it's covered under any insurance plan is if you're diabetic. That's too late. I mean, it's great. I want to send my diabetics also to the dietitian, but I want to send the people before they have diabetes. And it's very frustrating because these are the people that we can actually change the, the impact of their health. And I think ultimately heart disease prevention, as well as any other prevention, is like the asthma example. If we attack it early, if we start screening people early, even if we cover the basic screening for the cardiac disease risk factors and screen these people often and treat them aggressively, we're going to lower the risk of them developing heart disease. I'd like to make a comment on that if I might. I think it's really um, important that before we close, we talk about comparing treatments. I'd really like to touch on that very quickly uh, because it impacts my patient population uh, uh, quite a lot. We need, as we, we go forward, to start looking really closely at different treatment options, seeing what works. Sometimes, for instance, for back pain, I have patients who come in, they're older with what we call spinal stenosis, narrowing of the, the spinal column, and they have lots of pain because there's pressure on some of the nerves coming off. They get these so-called sciatica types of pain that patients come to you and complain about all the time. Having an operation, we will tell you, at least in our literature, the geriatric literature, doesn't work really well. Having physical therapy works better, more effective, and in the long run, it's much more cheap. I don't believe that the plan is to look at cost ahead of, of outcomes. But when you look at outcomes, if outcomes show that they're better, in the long run, cost will be, will be improved. So I think we cannot have a program going forward without looking at cost-effectiveness research. Thank you. Well, folks. I, uh, I want to thank you for at Sinai ha hosting us here for the great work you do. And uh, with that, let me yield to uh, Dr. Blumenthal and then to Secretary Sebelius, and, uh, and then we'll end. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, and thanks to the panel. I'm the, the IT guy, so I think it's appropriate that I should end on an IT note. I think of electronic health records ultimately as, in some ways, the key piece of the professional armamentarium. 
when we start to see electronic health records as essential to care as a stethoscope or an examining table or an x-ray suite, then the government will not need to be kick-starting the electronic health record movement. It'll be the profession that is pushing it along. And I think we're going to see that start uh, very soon. Madam Secretary. A lot of what is being discussed here that needs to happen is really a component of the health reform legislation as it's crafted. An investment in preventive health care uh, not only was made in the Recovery Act, the first time ever a national investment in prevention is going to be launched by the Centers for Disease Control very shortly, um, but the health bills do contain a shift in the system uh, toward, we, I'd like to say, you know, have a great sickness care system. We don't have a great health care system yet in this country. We have great health care providers, but uh, we need to make sure that at a much earlier point, uh, intervention is made, people have a health home, they get regular checkups. Uh, one of the most alarming statistics to me is that we have the first generation of American children today in the United States who, if the diabetes rate continues to grow, will have a shorter lifespan than their parents right now in America. Um, that's a, not a great place to be in this country, and we can change that. Um, so uh, both the investments in preventive medicine, the investment in um, comparative effectiveness research, which I would agree is absolutely essential, and uh, it's important that this effort move forward because, as we've just described today, the status quo is unacceptable, and we can't continue down the path we're on. So thank you for what you do, and uh, thanks for being part of this today. Thank you, Madam Secretary. You've been listening to a panel discussion among medical professionals at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago, led by Vice President Joe Biden. Thank you for tuning in to this special presentation on health care reform on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.